0: So most of us have had heroes or idols, and by idol, I mean in the, in the micro sense that we had growing up. Mine as a kid was Rocky Calavito. How many of you have heard of Rocky Calavito? Not one has. Oh, one. Oh, yes. Clevelandite. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you very much. So Rocky Calavito was an outfielder for the Cleveland Indians, played in the 60s. And, I mean, this guy, my brother and I and neighbor kids, you know, when we'd play baseball in the backyard, we would imitate Rocky Calavito, and he'd put his bat way up high. And, I mean, when he swung the bat, it was violent, and he ruined some leather doing that way. The guy was good. So that was kind of my my boyhood hero. But later in life, after I became a Christian in ninth grade, It didn't take long for me to really have ministry in my blood and it was something that I really wanted to do um, and it was my my passion. So other kind of heroes of the faith, people that I heard in particular, I began to esteem. People that I heard in person that had a, a significant influence on me were people like Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur, Matt Chandler. Evie Hill, Warren Weersby, uh, Stephen Olford, Tony Evans, Billy Graham, Louis Palau—all these people raised the bars. I would listen to them live, and you know they were great communicators of, of God's word. Not a more perfect, but highly skilled. I've sat in uh, undergraduate and graduate classes with uh, men and women who've been uh, great. Influence have they, as they have shared their vast experience. Uh, Gene Getz was a wonderful person in understanding how the church worked, and he's kind of the father of the Fellowship Bible Church movement. Now retired pastor out of um, Dallas area. Erwin Lutzer on the radio here was an instructor in one of my graduate level classes, undergraduate classes, and was a master apologist. Lyman Coleman was the father of the small group movement his brothers Robert Coleman who wrote the classic master plan of evangelism. These men had a significant influence on me in molding a, a ministry philosophy and being able to personally you know relate to them and ask questions benefited me uh, tremendously I've been to other countries I've talked to ministry leaders Christian leaders who've accomplished much for the kingdom of God I've had formal mentors in my life who've poured into me that I've benefited from. But if I had to name a couple people that have had the most influence, they're people that most of you have not heard of, except the Paschys will know who these people were. For those of you that don't know, Carrie Paskey was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. Uh, We knew each other back many, many years ago. One relationship and one episode out of that church was with the founding pastor, whose name was George Johnson. He was a man who was always encouraging, always kind, and all of his interactions with me were just life-giving. I just so much appreciated him. But one thing stood out to me is that one church workday, he and I were together in the auditorium and we were mopping. And he turns to me and he goes, Kevin? I go, yeah? He goes, I love mopping floors for Jesus. Wow. I'd never said that before then. Okay? It had such an impact. I mean, it just resonated in me that, you know, it wasn't about some powerful sermon that he preached. It was a man and a mop. And a heart of service. It's never left me. Another would be a widow in our church. Her name was Mary Ann Keekler. And she was in that same church. She was a dear friend to Janet and me. For those of you that don't know our story, I met Janet the night she became a Christian when she attended our church. And Mary Ann was the one that really grabbed hold of Janet and discipled her. Godly, godly woman. Her husband had a successful business. He passed away, and I never met him. He passed away before I got there, I think a year or two before I got there. And Marianne took over the business. And so, you know, she had a lot to do, but she still had ministry on her heart. And she impacted countless number of people through her intentional relationships um, and her humble service to the kingdom. When Janet and I got married... Um, I was making the astronomical amount of $10,000 a year as a youth pastor. So if you want to make money, youth ministry is not the uh, not the way to do it. But Marianne had a connection near downtown St. Louis. Um, her name was Ada Fantilli. <laughs> and Ada owned this building that had four flats in it. Uh, she goes, you need to go talk to her. I've set up a meeting in you know, we ended up renting one of those flats. Now, this would have been in um, 1980. And the uh, price of the flat, and it was beautiful, by the way, all wood floors and Murphy bed that came down from the wall. And um, all, that was in, in the guest um, room. But it was $115 a month. And that included utilities. And that was cheap even then, okay? I lived in it for a few months, and then we got married. But before we got married, Marianne knew we didn't have any money. And, and by the way, I look back on those times in. and Janet was working as a Christian teacher, and she didn't make hardly, about the same as I made, but we had no debt. So we were as happy as larks. I mean, we thought we were as rich as kings at the time, right? Um, she knew we didn't have any money, and she had a, a mom who had passed away, and she had a diamond ring but Marianne had three daughters. She went to all three daughters and asked them, I really would like to give this ring to Janet so she could use it as a wedding ring. And all three daughters said, sure, we'd love for you to do that. Now, if any of you have ever been involved in families that have had inheritance issues, you know it can cause deep fissures between family members because everybody's clawing and grabbing for what they can get. And the daughter said, yeah, give it to them. Now that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That happens because their mother exhibited this giving spirit, uh, sacrificing for others. I mean, it was amazing. For Marianne, life was not about what she accumulated on Earth, but submitting her will to her Heavenly Father. And that's what it's like for us, it should be. Whether it's a job, a marriage, family relationships, you know, material possessions, everything comes under, should come under, the will of the Father. That's where blessing comes from. Mary Ann, George Johnson, they're not the only acts of service that I've witnessed. I've seen some of you do the same that have deeply, you know, affected other lives. Um, I think of this woman on the front row here, Mary, who... I can remember when she first started working, she goes, you know what? I know the church is struggling. Let me just do it for free for a while. I mean, who does that except people that understand that their their life is not about just what to gain in terms of material possessions? What is it that gives people that? What what kind of understanding produces that kind of a of a of a giving, you know, servanthood? Because God can use a servant. The fact is, is, the world loves accomplishment. It loves accumulation. These are the signs of success. But but God uses another metric. Measurements of servanthood are what is marked on God's ruler. The words of Jesus are more than countercultural. Uh, they are actually counterintuitive for us as human beings. In other words, it's easier for me to think of self. I don't need help in thinking what benefits me. I need help of thinking of others because my flesh is prideful and arrogant. So it's counterintuitive to serve, but with the life of Christ in us, we begin to submit to his will, and it can be a way of life. But listen to how the disciples interacted with this idea. That's out of Mark 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it should not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you must be slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is so counterintuitive that when Jesus was modeling this before his disciples one day, he began to wash their feet. And one of the disciples goes, whoa, hey, man, you don't do that. You're not doing that for me. I mean, if anybody has earned the right to have privilege, if anybody has earned the right to be served, it's Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, you, you got it back." He took the opportunity as one of the last meals together with the disciples to give an unforgettable lesson by his example. Serving is counterintuitive, it is countercultural because it's not awarded in this marketplace just in its naked reality. Now, we might reward service. When it leads to the bottom line, it helps create more customers, it helps create more money, but just to do it by itself, when there's not profit that I can see, that's a much harder sell. I mean, it's really unlikely that any of us have heard of the janitor of a big corporation getting the employee of the year award. Right? It usually goes to the top salesman, the one who exceeded projections. Yet in God's economy, serving will be rewarded, whether in this life or the next. I'm so glad to know that Jesus takes notice when we serve. How cool is that? Jesus told the disciples, they are blessed if they do such things. Howard Hendricks, uh, the former instructor at Dallas Seminary, who I had the pleasure of sitting in on a few of his sessions, tells a story when he was in Washington, D.C., and I quote, I was ministering in Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. We had a Thursday morning father-son breakfast, 6.30. It was to be over by quarter of eight. There were many people from the military, quite a few people from various government offices, some craftsmen, laborers of various kind, really quite a mix. After I had finished speaking and the meeting was dismissed, I looked over to my right and there was Senator Mark Hatfield stacking chairs and picking up napkins that had fallen on the floor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are impressed that you are a United States Senator, you don't stack chairs and pick up napkins. If you're impressed that you are God's gift to the body of Christ as the great preacher of this age, you don't stoop to serve. If you're impressed that really you are the greatest thing that ever happened to your local church, you do not serve, you live to be served. End quote. Nowhere in scripture do we read about the volunteers that God used to achieve his purposes in the world. You heard me right. During his ministry, Jesus didn't go recruiting volunteers. He called people to be servants. The word doulas is actually translated in some passages as slave. We sure don't like using that word today. It's the word that Jesus used. Now, slavery was a little different than what it was in early America, but still, they were thought of as slaves. And slaves had an owner, and they had to submit to a master. (laughs) They weren't free to do just what they wanted to do. Now, at its essence, when it comes to a Christian having issues in their spiritual life, And sinning, at its essence, sin could be defined as independence from God or me having my will supersede the will of the heavenly Father. My will. I'm going to serve me. That's at the core of sin. And the Christian either serves the master of self or King Jesus. And when we become Christians, we have officially changed masters from the domain of darkness to the domain of light in King Jesus. In Romans 6.6, Paul tells us that when we've died with Christ, we've been freed from the bondage of sin. And if you keep reading down in verse 18, it says, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of unrighteousness, free from this bond, slaves of righteousness, what that means is I am bound to the will of Christ. It's the spirit of God in me who testifies of the word of God, the law of God in me, gives me the power to do the will of God. So when scripture speaks of God offering us freedom, We have freedom from our flesh, and we can still choose our flesh, but we have freedom now because we have a new master. The Israelites could serve Pharaoh in Egypt, or they could serve Yahweh of the promised land. And we can serve self in the domain of darkness, or we can serve Christ in the kingdom of life. Now, to serve self and to do this regularly, and I believe this is either as a non-Christian or a Christian, it blinds us to how limited, finite, and short-sighted we are in our independence. Independence, self-will, self-dependent, all synonymous, away from God. Here's the good news. Listen to this. This is worth shouting about. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. Amen. The kingdom has a king and his name is Jesus. We're not just obligated, but we have the privilege of serving this king in joy. And all of us Christians have to wrestle with this fleshly tendency to have our own way or to submit to the will of the father. And I think If the Christian life could boil down to something, this would be near the center of it. Submitting to the will of the Father in all of life, including my marriage, my money, my job, my relationship with others, the church. We humble ourselves and submit to the Holy Spirit who empowers us to fulfill the will of God. I think it's why James 4 says... Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those who have their will submitted to the father in this ultimate sense, they have no problem functioning as a servant. But I like that James puts his finger on the struggle, but that God gives us grace to submit to his will. And those who don't have their will submitted to the Father, and yes, I'm speaking to us as Christians, our will's not been broken. We don't have our will submitted to the Father. And you know what service is seen? Being a servant, it's a nuisance. It really is. Because I've never been broken to the will of the Father. You know, you may have a conversion experience, may have walked an aisle, signed something, even said a prayer. And I'm not discounting the emphasis that can have, but that doesn't identify you as a Christian. That's not how the world, if you're given your testimony, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, you know what? I signed a card. Now I do whatever I want for the rest of my life, but I signed a card. Okay, that, that's not it, right? The Christian whose will is not broken is like a bronco unwilling to allow someone to write it. It bucks any attempt to tame his will. Independent, self sufficient, rarely listening to instruction. That's the self ruling the Christian. But living a life of service demonstrates a will that has been broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. It's a queer way to put it. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart Oh God, thou will not despise. Christendom today is fraught with the type of Christianity that is presented that is always, you know, victorious, triumphant, get money, get success, blah, 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 be in the, you know, large crowd, ramp it up, you know, everybody get excited. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but that is not typical of the Christian life. If that's what you need to get going, fine, go for it. But the Christian life is about a soul-searching, daily surrender to the will of the Father when I don't feel like it, when I don't feel so victorious, when the marriage sucks, and I've gotta submit my will to my spouse when the job is not turned out. Sorry, don't feel like singing your Christian songs. But this is where life is meeting us often, a broken and contrite heart. Wanna know if your will's been broken? Ask yourself if you demonstrate more times than not, a proud person or a broken person. Here's some comparisons. I could have a sermon on every comparison, but I'm going to fly through these. Just allow the Spirit to maybe pinpoint some areas here. By the way, every one of these proud moments I have done, I got plenty of experience with that, but I want to choose the brokenness. So if you're here saying, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, about The proud person. Well, then you top the list of the proud person. Let me tell you. Nobody can say, you know. Saying I'm done with pride? I mean, seriously? Come on. Here it is. Focus. When you're proud, you focus on the failures of others. You want to sabotage your marriage? Just focus on your spouse's problems. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. You know, invariably, I go to my, go to the Lord, Janet and I, I think the last spat we had was 1984, maybe? No. It happens, right? Right? It happens. And invariably, when I meet with the Lord, I'm writing in my journal, and I've told you this before, and I realize, I am such a schmuck. Okay? That'll be on my tombstone. He was such a schmuck. But I realize how proud I've been, right? And and that's what the Lord is doing. It's just bending my will, breaking me. And I realize it's not about what she's done or the offense or how I got my feelings hurt. How have I served her? And I'm overwhelmed with my own need. Proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit, look at everyone else's fault, with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate, can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous, look down on others. Broken people esteem all others better than themselves. You know, one of the things about working downtown with our neighbors, loving our neighbor, is it helps us not to be so self-righteous. I remember one man I talked to about helping out, not recently, but about helping the poor. And he went on and on about what the poor are not doing to help themselves. And they have created their own mess. And I just remember thinking, you are a real arrogant piece of work. If you think every poor person is there because of their own doing. No compassion. Now, not that they're not responsible, but when you go and you realize that these are people made in the image of God, and I can come and just love them as a neighbor, not to lecture them, just to love them, and if I can help their plight in any way I can, then why not? Let's do it. Let's help. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. Recognize their need for others. Proud people have to prove they are right. Constantly being on Facebook, entering into every argument, proud people. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people claim rights, have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights, have a meek spirit. That word meek is used of a horse tremendous strength that has been broken to submit to another. Its strength is under control. That's what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean to be some wussy. It means to be a strong person disciplining their will to submit to the will of the Father. Proud people are self-protected of their time, their rights, and their reputation. I don't have time, I've worked all week I don't have time to be with God's people. I got to protect me, my time. I remember a Hollywood actor saying, now is my time when he left his wife. Now is my time. Hey, bud, you go for it. Good luck on that one. Broken people are self-denying Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people desire to be a success. Nothing wrong with success success itself, but when my identity, my main goal is that, broken people are motivated to be faithful and to make others a success. Uh, It's such a joy to see people you've been working with, people you're discipling, to get it to walk in truth, to be transformed. Nothing better to see than that or to see your children walking in the truth, to see your children leading somebody to Christ, to see your children getting their finances under the will of God or, you know, all that. Is there anything better than that? Man, that, that's, that's awful cool. Proud people desire self-advancement. Again, nothing wrong with being advancing, but it's your identity. It's your goal. Broken people desire to promote others. Proud uh, people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness are thrilled that God would use them at all. Wow, I mean, I look at God using me as a pastor. First of all, I didn't want this job in the first place. God forced me into it. That's the true story of it initially. (laughs) I don't have some romantic notion of wanting to be in ministry and God gave me this call from up on top of a mountain and here I am, Lord. You know, No, none of that. Now, I love what I'm doing now, but it didn't used to be that way. But I, I look at my own flesh and who I am. and If, if I'm not broken, yeah, I can really get myself in a bad spot um, because it's not about me. It's not about being appreciated, but it's about this task that God has before me to serve the people that he's given, to serve this community. And I'm unworthy to have it, but somehow he's put me here. Proud people are wounded when others are promoted and are overlooked. Broken people are eager for others to get credit and rejoice when others are lifted up. Proud people have a subconscious feeling This church is privileged to have me and my gifts. Think of what they can do for God. That's what a person thinks when he's proud. Broken people have an attitude that says they don't deserve to have a part in any ministry. They know that they have nothing to offer except the life of Jesus flowing through their broken lives. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled how very much they have to learn. A proud person is extremely self-conscious. Listen, I'm not saying all, but many people's obsession with self-image is an obsession with self. They're so focused on self and how they compare with others. I'm not saying self-image isn't a problem, but it's not about you. You're not the center of the universe, okay? And the more that we can teach our kids that, The better they can be at functioning as healthy adults. I'm an average communicator, you know, but if I'm comparing myself with Chuck Swindoll or Matt Chandler or whoever else, and I make it about me because I want to be that, I want to be this, I don't feel appreciated. That is being self centered. God doesn't want me landing there. So I need to get off of myself. Again, I don't need help thinking about myself. I need help not thinking about myself, right? And not being fixated on myself to know how God can use me for the task that he has before me. Now, listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to relate that we all do this, okay? So if you're feeling awfully guilty and shameful, that's not the point. The point is, this is who we are as human beings in this earth suit, so how can we move out of that and be a servant? How is our example of the master will of God being employed? Well, it's not in what I decide in a church service, although I certainly want you to be transformed, but it takes place in a marriage, in how I work at my, with my employer, in how I treat my neighbor, my relationships, how I function in the church. Because, you know, people see this, that, you know, I've got my own time, as if, you know, we're not given a responsibility to function in the church. That's a proud Christian, if they're truly a Christian. It is, it's just proud. That's not God's time This is my time to do what I want for me, for all of our pursuits. Jesus is not master. Human tendency is in line with Henley's poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I mean, if anything depicts our present society, it is that. This is a declaration of self, and it is a fist that we shake at our creator. Brokenness is humility. And by the way, it's a characteristic of being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. I loved what Wave Nunley had to say last week as we talked about this. Wave is a Pentecostal. He teaches at a Pentecostal school, but he gets it, and he understands that being filled with the Spirit is mainly a lifestyle. It's how I function in the whole of life and not one gift that's being displayed. He understands that. And we should understand that. And in Galatians 5, we hear how humility and submitting our will to the Father is the kind of the undertow of this passage. Notice how independence is displayed by our flesh and desires of God are displayed by the Spirit filling us. Listen to this. But I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you have the flesh, you have the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. It's not just a have to thing. I now want to because of this relationship I have with Christ. Now, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality. I will do whatever I have to do to please the flesh sexually. I have to have it if I'm going to function as a man, right? That's what the world says. I have to have it. Any passion. In fact, we now identify our passion with the the identity. It's one and the same. Because I have this passion, this is who I am. Really? Wow. You know, I think of myself as being at times, one who can golf, but I suck at it. My passion is not my identity. Reality sets in, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, again, flesh. I just need to satisfy the flesh right now. I want what I want. Idolatry, that could be a whole host of things. Anything that takes away God from my life and satisfies me now. Sorcery, even if it's in the spirit world, the darkness of the demonic world can give me a sense of power. Enmity, strife. Now we're getting into relationships. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, Facebook, divisions. It's in the Greek read it. (laughs) Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of us have done much of that, and I don't think by inheriting the kingdom, it means the same as entering the kingdom. I think inheriting has to do with rewards because he's writing to Christians, but that's for another theological discussion. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit. Again, notice how these involve relationships. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This has to characterize our life when we're filled with the Spirit. Next time you have a political conversation, ask yourself if you're filled with the Spirit and are patient, kind, gentle, exhibiting self-control. Because you can't have political conversation over here and God over here. No, God enters into this. That's what filling of the spirit means. Next time you say, I can say whatever I want to my spouse. You know, I went to church on Sunday. I did my thing. No, God enters into the conversation with your spouse. God enters in to all the relationships. And that's when I display the patience, the love, the joy. And when I see the pride come in, I can immediately say, Lord, this is flesh. And I can pray immediately, Lord, I want to be filled with your spirit. I welcome you. I welcome your will. And sometimes all I know what to do in that moment is just praying a prayer like that or or struggling like in my journal like I shared um, a minute ago. And confessing it and saying, you know what? That was fleshly. I'm really sorry. Sorry. But a proud person doesn't do that. A proud person focuses on the other person. I'm not going to say that until they confess to me. Right? Well, you're a schmuck. So, all right. No, but we all do it, right? We all do it. But a Christian is not one that just walks the aisle, signs a card. The, the Christian is recognized by this walking in the Spirit in these ways. And at the heart of it, I love what he said, it's not about law, it's not an obligation, but joy as we learn the gracious love of the Father that he has for us. And God has given us the power through the life of Christ in us, being filled with the Spirit, and I let Christ live his life through me. It's not about me conjuring up, you know, more willpower, it's saying yes to the Spirit who's in me and empowers me. And I love that. God, I always have got to bring it down to shoe leather, man. It's the relationships and how we relate to others. We're not conceited. We're not provoking another. We're patient and gentle. It's the opposite we, that we do when we refuse to speak to one another. Okay? It's in the church, it's in Christian families. Children refusing to speak to the parent parent refusing to speak to the child. See, I know, because I've raised four, so I know those adolescents, teenagers, they want to be, you know, autonomous. I get it. They want to be an adult. They want to have their own way. I get it. It's a healthy thing to want to be independent in the the sense of being responsible. But see, as as an adolescent and as a teen, your job is not primarily just to be Independent, your job is to be filled with the Spirit in that moment as you're relating to your parents. And that comes when your will is broken to the will of the Father. So Father, how can I exhibit this life in my relationship with my parents? And parents, how can I exhibit that filling of the Spirit in how I relate to my child with gentleness and patience? And that constant haranguing, and a lecture every 10 minutes, okay? That's not parenting. That's self-righteousness. And we have to learn the difference. We parent, we, we parent Christian phrases on one hand in our you know, Christian culture, and then in our family, in our church relationships, we can reap bitterness, We have cold and distant relationships because we've harbored ill will against others. I see it. Parents refusing to speak to other family members. Do us a favor and quit talking about Jesus because we don't need that kind of advertising. Get your will under the authority of the Father and humble yourself to those people that are offended and reconcile instead of this self-righteousness that until they bend, I'm not doing anything and we'll just stay cold and distant. Wow, wow. That is not Christian. That's not being filled with the spirit. And many, not all, mind you, accept distance from a committed Christian community because serving self with idols feeds my immediate satisfaction. I don't have time for all that. I got other things. I got other things I need to do, right? And we avoid the uncomfortableness of being in a truth-telling community. And we think we're free. You're just serving self when that's the common practice. And our, our self-protection has become more important than God's will. Now, you know how I know that? Because I've lived it. Because that's how the flesh is accomplished in my own life. So uh, I have experience with this, okay? Living by the flesh. But I don't want to stay there. And when I recognize the sin, I want to confess it. And I want to submit myself. You know, there are some times that Janet and I, just the act of doing this, you know, whether it's maybe an issue that we're dealing with, it doesn't have to be in the marriage, but could be a problem. You may think it's silly, but it helps us. We literally just get on our knees, bowing down. There's something about that act of humility. I don't have it all together. I am desperate. We need you. But instead, you know, we'll stand. We'll shake a fist. I've got this. No, you don't. You're fooling yourself. What acts are you doing that show you're submitting yourself to your heavenly father? How are you expressing that with one another? Now, you may be far from that. You may have a spouse that is nowhere near bowing a knee. All right? God bless you and give you strength, but you can't. You know what? You can still bring yourself, and if you have kids, to come and worship. You can still pray for that spouse. And the Bible actually addresses how you do that. And let me tell you how you not do it. You don't do it by, you know, taping Bible verses on his beer cans, okay? That's not gonna work. You do it with a respectful, humble spirit. Man and wife, so this is husband to wife, wife to husband. Praying for them. Now listen, you're getting beat, your husband's cheating on you. I'm not saying you stay in that, but I'm saying in cases where you just live with a meathead, all right? That'll be the title of my new book, Living with a Meathead. Okay? Actually, that'll be authored offered by my wife. She'll have that. <laughs> but the point is, is that we're used to this self-protection. That's part of our flesh. And our self-protection, our self-will, can't just say, you know, I got this. We have to say no to that. We have to not listen to that, and humble ourselves. So what are you doing to submit to the Father? Listen, in this idea of service, it strikes me of how many times the Bible uses volunteer. Any guesses on how many times it's mentioned in the Bible? Volunteer? Once. One time. You want to know how many times serving, servant, is used in the Bible? Over a thousand. A thousand times. Now, if if frequency has anything to do with importance, I think God's really concerned about us being a servant. See, it's much easier to sell advancement. And this is within Christendom. I mean, American Christianity loves advancement, influencing others. Be cool. Look at all the cool people on the stage. Wow, look at their designer jeans, how cool they are. I want to be like them. I want to play guitar like that. And we, we live in this culture that feeds on. Now, I'm saying it's bad to have those jeans or to have a guitarist up there. I'm just saying the, the ethos of some communities can play into this, being popular, But that's not servanthood, it's just not. And how we present ourselves, how we function, is it promoting this humility and servanthood? You know, nobody wants to be Alfred. Everybody wants to be Batman or Robin. And if you're one sick puppy, you want to be the joker, all right? (laughs) Any talk of serving has to be characterized as a spiritual act of submitting our will to the Father. And all of worship, all of service in life starts with that submission that he is the creator and I am the created. We find abundant life, I think, here by this act of submission. I give up my life, I lose my life for his sake, for service in the kingdom. If I'm bent on doing what I want chiefly and demonstrating a life of self, then all Christian verbiage of serving is just a nuisance. It's a barrier to me being captain of my life. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Wow. It's no wonder Paul said, all I wanna hear Is well done. Thou good and faithful victor. Thou good and faithful boss. Thou good and faithful leader. You know what it is. Thou good and faithful servant. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God, give us a harvester. Let's pray.